So please fire up your Bibles. Um, there's some on the side. Get them on your phone. You may have no pop at that tonight. Great. So you all want to be uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. That's the first Gospel in the New Testament, and it's chapter 5. And we'll continue in our series on Count Your Blessings. And I've got a great one, which was just headed, When You Have Lost. And I thought, well, that sounds quite brutal. But um, anyway, Jim has uh, set it from the message. And the message version says this. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. So it sounds nice, it rhymes, but actually the message is quite scary. That when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you, only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. That being Jesus being God. Okay, it sounds quite intense. So I thought I'd go to the passages that you have, NIV, NRSV. Matthew 5 verse 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Um, and I wasn't really sure what to do with that. Because I think the easy answer to respond, mourning is obviously about death, about dying. No one likes talking about that really. And then to claim that you'll be comforted when you've been really sad sounds really difficult. Uh, I had a bit of a look around and a reflection on it. And to start with, I thought, right, great. This is just about dying. This is just about when we die, we go to heaven, that's cracking. Like, that's brilliant. And then I could have just said, amen, that's it. Blessed are those who mourn, for eventually you will be comforted. But if you remember last week and the week before, Jim and Juliet were speaking about this. And they're not statements to be attitudes, but they're actually exclamations of a kingdom truth. They are proclaiming what the kingdom of God is bringing now and what it started to bring when Jesus first announced them. They are announcing an exclamation of a kingdom truth. So um, to kind of panic, I was like, what does a beatitude mean? Does anybody know what a beatitude means? I love it. Do you? Go on, what, how would you define it? We'll chat about it after. Thank you for that. Yes, it is a blessing. Um, yeah, so are you talking about like, um, it doesn't matter. Sorry, it's being recorded. Um, so there's two things. It can be a title for the early patriarchs, and you would say like the Beatitude Ben Brady, because I am so blessed. Um, one thing that made me titter a bit is that when you look at the meaning of Beatitude in other words, it is a state of utmost bliss. A state of utmost bliss. How wonderful that within the utmost bliss you are reminded of mourning, of death. Now the Beatitudes come from the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So it's worth making a note of that. 5, 6, and 7 for when you come back and read it tonight, weeping. Because what I found is that Matthew is pretty brutal. All the way through, he's reminding us of what Jesus said this idea of losing everything, which is how the message puts it. You will lose everything most dear to you. 
and then you can be embraced by the one most dear to you. See, Matthew 20, verse 18, the Great Commission, it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. We were on a staff retreat, and that was one of the verses that we were asked to reflect on. I can't remember why, but I really enjoyed it. And basically, the part I'd never noticed before is in the middle. Normally we say, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, brilliant. And don't worry, I am with you always to the end of the age. Yes, thank you, Lord. That is such good news. But the middle bit says, teaching them to obey, which is an awkward word, I think, nowadays. We don't like this idea of obeying. Teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Have you ever wondered, what is that? What did Jesus command us to do? Oh, well, Jesus speaks in parables, and Jesus does this. I, I know all the excuses, because I've come up with them as well. But the answer is as simple as five, six, seven. If you go home tonight and read through, I encourage you to, read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is what Jesus is commanding us to do. What's worse is that Matthew 10 and Matthew 16 even goes on talking about denying ourselves. If you don't go all the way with me through thick and thin, you don't deserve me. If your first concern is to look after yourself, you'll never find yourself. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. That's Matthew 10, 38, 39 in the message. What I find difficult is Jesus asks so much of us. Jesus uses this really, what seems like aggressive language in Matthew, where we have to lose ourselves, basically lose everything that is dear to us, to then be able to experience Jesus. I remember when I was at university and um, I thought I was right smart ass because I came up with this idea that, um, it, and I actually wrote, wrote this down so I don't forget, it may appear a sacrifice outwardly, but actually, you know, it's a blessing. Doesn't really make any sense I'll unpack it. We might think that we're being asked to sacrifice stuff and people outside might, but actually we realize that we're doing it to feed ourselves. We're doing it for a greater good. The morning series, we're looking at feasting and fasting. And that's to be more like Jesus. That is what Jesus did. He feasted and fasted. Now, people get a bit squiffy with this, and I get that. They're like being told what to do. But what's bizarre is that people have been attracted to Stoicism. I've got a, I've got a relative who's obsessed with the Stoics, he thinks I'm a nutter for being a Christian, but he loves the Stoics. He likes to read these verses about, well, just do this because we all die anyway. Other things that have taken off have been taking cold showers <laughs> or cold water swimming, which my wife is obsessed with doing. If you're anything like me, the problem with these things is that we like the idea of discipline, but then we throw everything out with the ba we throw the baby out with the bathwater. When we get sick of it, 
So for me, it was veganism, it was fasting, it was uh, just lots of other wacky stuff. I'm basically very blessed to still be married because I decided I was doing these crazy things, going for ridiculous runs in the morning, coming back and being sick, just stupid things, and then deciding, you know what? Oh, it's not worth it. Whereas I think that what we're being pushed to do is to look at ourselves, look at the areas that we struggle with, and make space for God to come in there. It's like we talked about this morning. And what I think really strikes home when Jesus speaks is he talks about discipline. He talks about how do you discipline yourself to nurture your relationship with God. You see, I'm in the Desert Fathers at the moment because I'm just great fun. And the Desert Fathers would literally take themselves out into the desert and live on their own as hermits in these tiny little shells And they didn't want to talk to anybody. They'd live off minimal food. And the idea is that they would pray constantly. They'd recite the whole Psalms every day. But what is so wonderful about reading these stories is they're not a bunch of grumpy old men. First of all, they were women. But they weren't grumpy. They weren't just sat there like, I'm so angry at God. And some modern day uh, people who basically live on their own, uh, Merton, for example, He said that he had to draw himself away from people to focus on what God wants. Because when you surround yourself with other people, all you want to do is pursue what they have. And you might think, well, that sounds quite intense. But because I'm also really fun, I was having a look through my book on death, dying, grieving, and uh, mourning, um, which you don't have to read as a vicar, and I don't know why I've got it, but it's really good. And uh, one thing that really surprised me is that we might think of mourning and grieving, as Jesus talks about, as being something that's natural. Somebody dies, and we're really sad, we grieve, we mourn. But actually, the way we do that, so the initial emotion of sadness, that's biological, all right, not arguing that. (coughs) But how we mourn and how we grieve is actually conditioned by our culture. How you respond to those things is conditioned by the culture you are around. And um, within this book, which I'm happy to lend to anybody, there was a love letter written by, um, well, it's, it's, it's an ancient Greek man who was working in the field. And he writes to his wife declaring his undying love to her. And he's like, oh, my darling, I'm so, and obviously not like this, not Yorkshire, it would have been in Greek, can't speak Greek, but he does say, You know, my darling, I'm so sorry that I'm going to be working uh, whilst you're in labor. Uh, The fields are plentiful and I have to be here. And so many blessings upon you for when you give birth. And at the end it says, and if it's a girl, just leave it outside. So, in case you were, in case I wasn't clear, we're, we're horrified by that, and quite rightly so, we're mortified by it. But the culture back then that we see <coughs> is that this man loved his wife. This man was so excited about his wife being pregnant, having a child, but the value of women was so low, just an extra mouth to feed, that if it was a girl, leave it on the doorstep to die. You see, who we surround ourselves with 
what we look at, what we read, affects who we are. As I was looking at this idea of mourning, I was wondering, what does it look like for me when I'm mourning for myself? John Stott, who most of you have heard of, I'm sure, speaks about this mourning for our own sins and all those in the world. Because mourning is choosing to respond and it's also repentance. By mourning the stuff that's eating you up inside, actually acknowledging the fact that it's making you sad, it is distracting you from your relationship with God, acting on it is hopefully the culture we have in this church. We're going to have a time where we can be prayed for, for those things. You don't have to share what it is. But some questions that came to my mind as I was thinking about this, I read a book last year, John Mark Comer, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and it's wonderful, it's nature, it's superb. And that really transformed a lot of the ways I behaved. And I don't want to sound like I'm on the pop at anybody, because I'm really not. It's just to maybe scratch the surface. But when we think about the things that maybe hold us back from our relationship with God, things that we're actually sad about, how do we respond to it? So where does your phone live? When you're going to bed at night, where does your phone live? I'm not just talking about like the obvious things that people look at on the internet as unhealthy or helpful. But do you have that extra five minutes to scroll through whatever it is you're scrolling nowadays instead of just having a bit of quiet and prayer? Take it even further. Where does your Bible live? I mean, if you're a sad case like me, I've got numerous Bibles and I like to dot them around. My wife doesn't, but I do. And it is for that reason. So the Bible is there to read. You see, I'm a big advocate for having a separate book, for actually having a paper Bible. And um, you don't have to graft. <clears throat> I'm sure it hasn't happened in this sermon. But how many of you who looked at the Bible on your phone just stayed on the Bible app? How many of you flicked over onto something else just because it's there? It's tempting, isn't it? I got a new phone the other day. I literally can't stop touching the thing because it's designed for you to want to touch it constantly. It's not having a go, but what's scary is that it might be helpful to have the Bible on your phone, and that's great, and to listen to it. But are you actually taking the time to take in what God is trying to say to you? Or are you just trying to get on to the next thing? Are you basically just tempting yourself? That's kind of it. And that's kind of just what it boils down to. How many times are we actually just setting ourselves up to fail, tempting ourselves? If we take the Beatitudes seriously, I believe that is the way that Jesus draws us closer to him. It's how we can live more Christ-like. We want to give things up for Jesus because he gave everything for us. We're sat here now at nearly 7 o'clock in the evening because Jesus has either attracted you here, you've been invited by somebody who loves Jesus, or you simply want to worship Jesus for what he's done in your life. But it comes at a cost. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis because of his faith, he wrote this. With every beatitude, the gulf is widened between the disciples and the people. Or the gulf is widened between the followers of Christ and the world. 
The question is, what does it look like for you? Where are the areas where maybe it just needs to be rooted out? I remember hearing a saying when it comes to like church stuff, when people get all obsessed about like the colours of carpets and things, that sometimes it's just grasping the nettle. You've actually just got to grab the nettle and pull it out, and it's going to sting a bit, but it's better than letting it just grow bigger and bigger. For some of you, you might have it absolutely sorted, and that's great. And actually, for those who think that it's working, you are the people as well who I encourage to meet up with the small groups that we've got, but one another. Encourage each other. How can you draw closer to God? What are the areas in your life that actually make you grieve? When we're in these sessions of worship, where we're raising our hands and we're declaring that God is good and Jesus is the light that cannot be overcome, it's all true. But sometimes it seems to sneak off for me Monday mornings. Thursday mornings are an absolute beast for me because it's my day off the day after. I'm trying to get the last push of work done. And the last thing I want to do is sit down and pray. But actually, that is what Jesus commands us to do. So, Jesus tells us to obey everything that he has commanded us. It's not catchy, but that's as simple as chapter 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew. Go home, reflect. I just invite you now to think, where are the areas that actually make your heart ache when you think of how it may be holding you back from your relationship with Jesus? So I'm going to invite you to stand where you are. going to spend some time um, just listening to God and we'll just ask the Holy Spirit to come and um, share some of truth together. So um, I'm just going to pray. If you want to come and just put your hands up, that'd be fine. I'll just open the house. So let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. 